16. going to be in Matthew 16, 13 this morning. Appreciate the special carry and the excellent song leading this morning. I, uh, I knew those songs, and I'm younger than Rachel is, so. We sang Heaven's Jubilee all the time growing up, probably once a month uh, at church, so it just depends on where you are. That's an interesting, interesting thing. And one of the neat things at the nursing home is the, some of the songs everybody will know, some of them half of them will know, some of them the other half will know. It just kind of depends on how you grew up. Matthew 16 is a really interesting, really famous passage, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible for a couple different reasons, um, but it's, it's going to be very exciting for us to look at today. I'm looking at it because we're going to be spending a little bit of time thinking about the nature of the church in the next few weeks. We're going to take a little break from 1 Corinthians, and Lord willing, we're going to look at some of the marks of what makes a church, about what, what are the essential things about the Christian faith. Um, some of you uh, may be aware that the uh, 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his uh, 95 theses on the uh, Wittenberg uh, bulletin board uh, is going to be on October 31st this month. It's kind of an interesting historical side note. I'll have a lot more to say about it as we go about what the significance of that was or rather wasn't. Uh, uh, and we'll, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But I just let you know that there's a big event in Christian history that's taking place this month. And it kind of got me thinking, well, what is the true history of the church? And I think that Matthew 16 is the obvious place to go for that answer. Let me read to you. Uh, we've got a relatively short text today, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And in these seven verses, we're going to see something a lot, <laughs> something very incredible. It says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. And I say it's also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, grateful for the privilege of your word, grateful for your promise that the gates of hell themselves would not prevail against your church. I ask, Father, that as we see your unstoppable church this morning, as we see your unstoppable power, that we'd be motivated to be aggressive in outreach for your kingdom, that we'd be bold, that we'd be confident, that we'd trust you completely. I ask, Father, now just for you to open the words of my mouth, that you'd open all of our hearts, that as we receive your word, we'd receive it meekly, that we would be made more like your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Jesus takes the disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, today, there is no place called Caesarea Philippi. Today, it's called Banias. 
Uh, Benias, it's kind of interesting. Benias was called Caesarea Philippi, and before it was called Caesarea Philippi, it was called Panias. Uh, but in Arabic, there's no p noise, and so the Arabs couldn't pronounce the Greek name of the place, and so they called it Banias, and that's what it's called to this day. Banias is kind of an interesting place. Can I get the next slide to release it with this map? So you see the Sea of Galilee down here is where Jesus took most of his ministry. Caesarea Philippi is way north, like 25 miles north. Now, you go 25 miles to the gro- go to the grocery store, but that's because you don't have to walk, okay? That is a multi-day walk each direction. This is, according to the Gospels, the only time that Jesus went to this area. So he did not go just kind of casually, oh, we happen to be by Caesarea Philippi. Let me ask my disciples who they think I am. In fact... Jesus took them to this place for a very specific reason. Now, Caesarea Philippi, when it was called Panias, that's because they worshipped the Greek god Pan there. The Greek god Pan. Now, when Caesar died, when, uh, well, when Julius Caesar died, Caesar Augustus said that after his death, Julius Caesar had become a god. And so Caesar Augustus started printing on his coins... Caesar, the divine son, the great high priest. So Caesar was going around saying he was the son of God and he was the true high priest. In Caesarea Philippi, Herod, uh, Herod Philip, was trying to suck up to Caesar. And so he renamed his palace Caesarea. And because he was such a humble man, Herod Philip also named it Philippi uh, and said, at Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to build a temple. And on top of the temple to Pan, he built a temple to worship Caesar, the son of God, the great high priest. Before it was uh, Caesarea Philippi, before it was Panias, they worshipped uh, Baal there in Old Testament days. In Old Testament days, this place was called Bashan. And if you're familiar with Psalm 22, he says, the wolves of Bashan have surrounded me when Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. Okay, so this is an intense place. Can we get the next slide? Um, We've been there. Uh, It's interesting, one, because the headwaters of the Jordan River are there. And so this is kind of the northernmost part of Israel. That's where the Jordan River begins, is in uh, Caesarea Philippi. Okay, next slide. Here you can see uh, the huge rocky face that the city is built into on the back. And uh, you can see it's, it's, there's no good spot to get a picture of all of it. But uh, next slide. This is interesting. Okay, so here, carved into the rock, they had these arches. And inside these arches, that man did not know that I was using him for scale, but there you are to see how big it was. They had a giant statue of Pan, and then, of course, a giant statue of Caesar. And people would come here to worship. Okay, and if you show the next slide they had smaller idols surrounding him in other uh, niches in the stone. And when I say smaller, it's still a massive, huge thing up there, okay? Probably 10 feet tall, maybe. Next slide. It was a really beautiful spot. Uh, They have all these ornate pillars and different things made out of marble. Uh, According to ancient records, you you could see the city from miles away, this glistening, white, beautiful city. And then uh, you can almost see it in the next slide. It was 2,000 years ago. But see, they had these ornate tile patterns. There I am for scale. 
Um, Colleen took this picture. But say that the tiles there, you can still see the color in some of the tiles, even though they've been exposed to the elements for 2,000 years because they were so well made. So this place was Sin City, okay? It was worse than Corinth, if you can believe that. Panias, or Caesarea Philippi, was this massive temple built to show the power of Caesar himself, the unstoppable power of Caesar. The next slide may be the most interesting. This is the cave where the Holy of Holies was for Caesar's temple. This, in ancient pan mythology, they believe that this was the doorway to the underworld. And do you know what this cave was called? It was called the Gates of Hell. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And it gets more, I mean, Suddenly, when you know a little bit of the background, some of these phrases you've known your whole life, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, you understand why Jesus brought his disciples here. There's a lot of intensity to this. So this spot called the gates of hell was the spot where they would go to worship their false idols. Once they, you know, There was a statue there, and this was the holy place. So all that to say... It was no accident when it says Jesus went 25 miles out of his way, three or four days walk each direction to go to Caesarea Philippi for the most important moment, at least in Peter's life, uh, up until the resurrection, you know, up to this point. So let's go back and let's look here again at our first verse. I think that was the only, I think it was all I had. It says, and when Jesus came into the coasts, of Caesarea Philippi. Now, the, the coast, just mean the, the, uh, Caesarea Philippi is not on the water. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's the surrounding districts. Is, uh, in the King James English, sometimes they use coasts to mean stuff that was close to the border of, uh, and not the way that we use the word coast necessarily. So here, he's in one of the surrounding villages close to Caesarea Philippi. When it means he's come up close enough that he's where the people are. And he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is a very important question. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I've gone around calling myself the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is sometimes used in the Old Testament to just mean a person. It's just kind of a Hebrew way of, they, they swirl their words around. A son, if I, my dad's a man, so I'm a, a man. You know, I'm a person. Son of Man is another way of saying human being. But sometimes in the Old Testament, you get these streams, okay? You get these incredible little moments where uh, it says things like, I saw one like the Son of Man coming unto the Ancient of Days, and he received honor and glory and power in a kingdom that has no end. And so Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, what do people think I mean when I call myself the Son of Man? Do they think that I mean that I'm a human being? Or do they think that I mean that I'm the divine figure with honor and glory and power forever? Now, we as Christians know the answer is yes. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He's man, fully flesh, but he's also fully God. So he looks at his disciples, though, and they don't know. They've been walking with him for two years, maybe longer, at least two years, because he's got a year left of his ministry. And they say, he says, who am I? He says, some say that thou art John the Baptist. You remember after Herod had John the Baptist killed and he heard about Jesus' preaching, he said, I killed John the Baptist and he's come back from the dead. He said, some say that you're Elijah. 
Elias is the Greek form of Elijah. Some say that you're Elijah because the way that you preach so powerfully, because the way that you lead your people. Some say that you're Elijah because you've got such a presence of the Holy Spirit about you like Elijah did. And of course, Elijah was also expected to come before the end of the world, according to Malachi. And others, Jeremiah. Now, if you know your Bible, there are no prophets that are more different than Elijah and Jeremiah. Elijah was a prophet of fire. You remember Elijah called down fire on the heads of his enemies. Elijah's uh, uh, protege, Elisha, is famous because when a group of young men were taunting him, saying that he'd killed Elijah in the wilderness and he was just an imposter, he called down bears to kill them. Right? You've read that story. You see, Elijah was a man of power and boldness. What was Jeremiah's nickname? It's called the weeping prophet. Nobody listened to anything that Jeremiah said. Jeremiah had a long ministry that ended in his execution with no converts. And all he did was weep for his people. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes when people looked at Jesus, they said, you are like Elijah. You are so bold and you are so powerful. And sometimes when people looked at Jesus, they said, you're like Jeremiah. You've just got a broken heart for your people. Now, I don't know about you, but I think most of us have a tendency to either go to one extreme or the other. Either you are Jeremiah and you're just, oh, so much grace, so much compassion. Or you're Elijah and you're so bold, so this is how it's going to be. But maybe we need to be like the one that John chapter 1 says was full of grace and truth. That some people said he's like Elijah, some people said he's like Jeremiah. And of course, or one of the prophets uh, may have some pretty important significance because Moses said there was going to be another prophet like him who was going to come and give a new law. If that's what they're thinking, then they're the closest to right that they've been. But then he says, who do other people say that I am? Well, other people think you're one of these prophets. You're like an ancient figure. Come back again. And of course, that's what... uh, some groups believe, you know, Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet. And Jesus says, but whom do ye say that I am? He says, remember, ye is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? You 12 apostles. Who am I to you? And maybe Jesus asks the same question to you today. Who do you say that I am? Well, Jesus, you're a great teacher. You know, I think you're a lot like Jeremiah. You just get kind of weepy. You know, you're very emotional. You just want us all to be happy. Or maybe you're afraid of God, you know, and you think, oh, he's like Elijah. You know, you think he's like John the Baptist, kind of old-fashioned, a little backwards, you know. Or maybe you answer with Peter. Whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, it is no coincidence, as I already told you, that he came to Caesarea Philippi said, all these people over here are worshiping Caesar as the true king and as the son of a dead God. He said, but who am I to you? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the one that was promised to come and deliver your people. Now, Peter doesn't fully understand it. Peter still thinks Jesus is going to deliver the people by overthrowing Caesar. But he says, you're the Christ. 
You're the one that was promised in the Old Testament. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the son, not of Julius Caesar. You're the son, not of just any god. You're not the son of Pan or the son of Zeus or the son of Augustus. You are the son of the living God. Now, fundamentally then, this is the answer that Jesus needs from you. Say, you're the one who was sent to deliver me. You are the son of the living God. Just as son of man is a way of saying he has the same nature of man, son of God is a way of saying he has the same nature of God. To call Jesus the son of God is to call him God the son. Peter says, I can't wrap my mind around it. I don't understand it all. But you are God in the flesh come to deliver your people in the Hebrew way of speaking. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Say, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. Because you didn't figure this out from your father, John. You didn't figure this out from flesh and blood. It wasn't revealed to you by any kind of man. It was revealed to you by my Father. The Father you just said, you are the Son of the living God. It was revealed to you by the living God. And again, that's still true today. Nobody wakes up and thinks their way through it and suddenly you know, comes to God of their own power. The Bible says, no man can come unto me except my Father draw him. God convicts you with his spirit, shows you who he is, and then you either accept him like Peter did or you reject him and refuse to have faith. It's, Peter here has what it takes. Peter's not that smart. He's about to argue with Jesus, and we're not going to read it, but he's about to argue with Jesus when Jesus says he's going to be crucified. And Peter says, oh no, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Peter's not that smart. His theology is not all right. His behavior is not perfect. He hasn't repented in the sense of fixing his behavior. But he's got faith. <laughs> he says, Lord... And in the sense, you know, the Bible sometimes uses repentance in the sense of change your behavior. Uh, Sometimes the Bible uses repentance in the sense of turn from yourself and turn to God. That's what Peter's doing. He He says, I'm turning to you, Lord, and I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so when it says uh, in Acts that he taught repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it's talking about. Repent means turn. Turn to Jesus, place his trust in God. Now, you don't have to change your behavior to become a Christian. God's not waiting on you to get your life cleaned up. There's an old hymn that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. God says, I want you, like Peter, to let me reveal myself to you and you to say, I trust you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you've come to deliver me and I believe that as the Son of God, you live for me. He said, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because you didn't get this from any person. It was revealed to you from my Father, which is in heaven. So let's look then in the next verse. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a verse that requires a lot of explanation because there's a lot of wordplay and stuff in there. 
Have you ever heard of uh, pet petrified wood? What's petrified wood? It's wood that's become rock. The Hebrew, the Greek word, I'm sorry, the Greek word for rock is petros. For a stone is petros, male. The Greek word for a boulder is petra. Have you ever heard of petra in uh, Jordan? These big, huge stone rock, stone rocks. These big, huge stones. It's very beautiful. You should look up petra. The um, petros was not really a common word in uh, Israel at the time. They used lithos, but in any case, uh, it was the male form of rock. Now, Peter, petros, was not a name. You know, we think of Peter as a name. But Jesus walked up to Peter and said, you, Simon, from now on, I'm going to call you Rocco. Okay, he says, I'm going to rock. I'm giving you a name that's not a name. It's a thing. I'm inventing a new name for you. So Petros refers to a small stone. Petra uh, refers to a huge boulder. Jesus says, thou art Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my ecclesia. Now, there's a lot of kind of complicated language stuff in here. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're a little stone, but upon this boulder, I will build my assembly. Now, what's Jesus talking about when he says, upon this rock? Our Catholic friends say, well, this is Jesus saying, Peter, you're the foundation, you're the first pope. You know, you're going to rule over the church. I'm going to build it up on you. Uh, That's difficult to believe because it contradicts the difference in Petros and Petra. If Jesus had wanted to say that, he would have said, thou art Petros, and upon this Petros I'll build my church, you know, and they would have had that wordplay. But instead he refers to something bigger. I think that there are several layers of meaning to it. I think there's usually several layers of meaning. One, I think Jesus has taken them to this giant stone of Caesarea Philippi, of Panias, this place where idols were worshipped. And he's saying, here in the midst of sin, on this rock, I'll build my church. Then I think he is saying, in a sense, Peter, because he's talking to Peter, Peter, this confession of faith you've just made, you're showing me that you're a stone here. Then I think the rock... (laughs) And I, I, can, I can prove this if we had time, uh, even from Second Peter, where Peter himself says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then the apostle and the prophets refers to the New Testament. By giving the word of God, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, that's the rock. See the layers of meaning? There's the place they are, there's the man he is, there's the message that he has, but ultimately the rock is the Lord himself. There's no rock like our God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God is called our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. So Peter has the message of the rock, but ultimately it points to the rock himself, just as the written word points us to the living word. It makes, uh, I've been thinking about this beautiful hymn uh, by uh, Samuel Stone. I don't think we've ever sung it here. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Isn't that pretty? I mean more to you when we finish this in a minute. 
the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. So he says, Peter, you're a little stone, but this little stone points to the boulder that you were chipped off of. You know, uh, the Adrian Rogers used to say, no, it wasn't Adrian Rogers. It was uh, uh, Vance Hafner used to say that Christians may be nuts, but it's okay as long as they're attached to a good bolt. Okay? <laughs> you see, you're a little chip off the old block. Peter. He says, you're a little stone, but your little stone has just shown me that you have the substance of the son of the living God. And on that rock, I will build my church. Now, okay, on this rock, next little section, I will build. I will build. Build the word oikodomeo. Build up, amplify, edify. The word translated edify a lot of times in courage is oikodomeo says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church up. This doesn't mean Jesus is going to start it and then abandon it. It means through the ages, he's going to continue to build his church. He's still in the business of building his church. And then you come to this question, what's a church? See, I think a lot of people uh, get confused. One, because our word church is actually, uh, English is not based on Latin or Greek. English is based on German. And the German word for cathedral is Kirche. That's where we get our word church. It's from the word for cathedral. And so people think, okay, a church is a building. It's like a cathedral. But of course, that's not the word that Peter is being answered with here. That's not the word that Jesus is using. The word that Jesus is using is ecclesia. Ecclesia is actually just the normal, everyday word in uh, Greek for crowd, assembled group. But for Jewish people, it had a slightly more complex meaning. In the Old Testament, whenever the nation of Israel is gathered together, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that most Jews use, the Septuagint, the assembly of Israel was called God's ecclesia, God's people, God's assembled group, his people gathered together. Now, Jesus, when he first started his ministry, he called Peter and he called 11 other apostles. Now, when a man comes in and says, I'm calling a group of 12 to build my people from, he's making a pretty bold claim. The 12 tribes of Israel is very clearly what he's referring to. He says, God had his Old Testament people. He says, but now I'm raising up a new people with 12 new tribes. He says, on this rock, I'll build my church. That's a pretty bold claim to divinity that he's making. He says, God's ecclesia is my ecclesia. God's assembly is my assembly. He says, Peter, starting on this confession that you've made that refers back to me, starting on who you've shown yourself to be, I'm going to branch out and I'm going to build my assembly. Now, Assembly, of course, means a, a, a group of people gathered together for a specific purpose. Klesia means called. Ek means out. Called out group of people. So here, you are in a church. You're a group of people that have been called out by God to fulfill his work. Set apart by salvation, by baptism, makes you a member of a church, makes you a part of the church. Today, 
of course, the, there are churches scattered over the whole world. As some of the songs we were singing this morning point out to us, there's a day where God will call all of his people together, and all of his people will be called into one great assembly. Hebrews 12 uh, refers to that as the church of the firstborn. It says in eternity, everybody's gathered together, although now we're in separate churches. Now, so Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word hell there is the word Hades in Greek and does not necessarily refer to hell as a place of torment, but means death. The gates of death will not prevail against it. Jesus is about to give them some very bad news. Just past what we uh, read, it says... From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus had not plainly taught his disciples before his last year of ministry that he was about to go and die. And they were not ready for that information. Jesus tells them, On this rock I'm going to build my church and the power of death will not overcome it. That refers on one hand to his own death. His own death was going to be the first obstacle they were going to face. But not the last. Jesus had 12 apostles. Judas killed himself. Ten of the others died for the faith. But their death did not overcome his church. Your death will not overcome God's people. <laughs> and you, you know, sometimes we get so egotistical, don't we? We say, well, it can't go on without me. You know, God sure is lucky that I'm here this week. You know? been great people have gone on before and great people have died but the work of the lord goes on this isn't saying that no particular church is going to crumble but the church as an institution always lasts the church that actually uh sent out the members to start this church doesn't exist anymore but the witness of the gospel carries on God doesn't promise us certain success in that way, but he promises the church as an institution will never be overpowered. That word prevail kind of is a, not the best translation uh, because it, it implies that maybe the church could lose and then come back as long as it doesn't lose in the end, but, you know, prevail. But it means, it literally means overpower. There will be no time, Jesus says, from now until I come to gather all my people together where I won't have a church. So that's one time I mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, well, there was no church that really taught the gospel from 300 A.D. to 1600 A.D. You know, that's false. There's always, you know, and we'll, we'll follow through in the coming weeks, Lord willing, some of the history of it and some of the persecution and different things that happened to different groups under Constantine and others. There was always a group of people called out by God, covenanted together to carry out his work. That's pretty incredible. You know, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. There's something about that name. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. Is that um, Constantine in uh, 325 AD called together a group of churches and said, I want you to fuse with me. You know, we're going to make it the Holy Roman Empire. And there were a group of churches that refused to come because they believed in the separation of church and state and they believed that Constantine was a fake. And those people 
were not allowed to join in the Holy Roman Empire, so they didn't serve the Pope as the Bishop of Rome, and they were persecuted, and lots of them were killed. You, know, you follow it through the ages. Um, but God is unstoppable. Jesus, he, if, it, if Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I really hope that you'll build my church, then we'd have some things to be concerned about. Because it would only be as strong as Peter, or it would only be as strong as this man, or only be as strong as this man. But Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the very power of death, shall not prevail against it. That's pretty powerful. So you need to know that death, the last great enemy, the last thing Satan has to throw at us, is not strong enough to overcome what Jesus has built. Now what this means then is that when we witness, when we lead people to Christ, when we lead people to baptism, lead people to service, we are carrying on Jesus' work with him. And when you're working alongside Jesus, it is impossible to fail. You say, well, you know, I might lose in this situation. I might upset these people. I might cause these problems for myself. I might, I might, I might, I might. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The strength of death will not overcome it. You know, we sing, I, I'm, I'm very fond of quoting at funerals a certain hymn, uh, not at funerals, at gravesides. At gravesides, I love to quote, um, uh, low in the grave he lay. I think it's such a powerful little song. And it, it reflects here the fact that Jesus overcame the gates of hell, the fact that death could not keep his prey. Acts 2 says he was, it was impossible for him to be held by the pains of death. And low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Second verse, death could not keep his prey, Jesus my Savior, he tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Now, Jesus overcame the gates of death. Jesus built his church. So death, sin, and the grave cannot overcome the people of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil are stopped by the power of Jesus marching on. You know, I wonder how seriously we take it when we sing some of these songs, Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Do you really realize that you're in a war? There's a fight going on. Not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They say, onward Christian soldiers. You know, I think people used to have a better sense of that. Now we just feel like we're kind of floating by. But you're in a war, a war that you're guaranteed to win. But it might hurt. <laughs> onward Christian soldiers. You know, what did Billy Graham call his evangelistic outreaches? Call them crusades. You ever think about your life in that kind of a context? You're on a crusade for Jesus? Going to conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. Going to reach people for the kingdom's sake and bring them in. I think that if you had a wartime mentality, you'd live your life an awful lot different. 
You wouldn't, you know, some places are not worth defending. There's some, some you know, traditions or ways of doing things that people get attached to. You've got to realize in a war, you don't get everything you want. In a war, what matters is the battle. In a war, what matters is defeating the enemy and carrying the kingdom on. God never said that this way or that way of doing church would never fail. He said, my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church today looks an awful lot different than it did 2,000 years ago. An awful lot different. They didn't really sing like we sing. They chanted, you know, and they didn't have instruments because they met in houses and they were in fear of being killed, you know. So they had to keep things kind of down key. They, um, people then joined the church and that was their family because their real family disowned them when they became Christians. Now I hear people say things like, well, you know, I visited this church and I just didn't really get a whole lot out of it, so now I'm going to visit this church and then I'm going to visit this church and I hope that they've got this kind of program that I want. You know, can you imagine somebody in North Korea or China saying that? Yeah, I know, we crawled over the minefield so that we could get to this church, and we're here in secret so we can worship the one true God. But I really didn't like the way that the music went this morning, so I'm going to crawl against the minefield, and I'm going to find something that's for me. Then we've got to come to something really powerful. Upon this rock, I will build my church. You know whose church it is? Jesus's. It's the God's. That means... But sometimes I don't always get my way. Sometimes I think when churches vote, they say, okay, my vote is my chance to get things the way that I want them to be. You're going to whack somebody in the back of the head. That hurt a little bit. You're going to whack somebody in the back of the head. No, your vote is not for you to stand up for what you would like. Your vote is you as a priest of the Most High God to, after prayer and fasting, represent what God would have the church to do. It's not about what I want. It's about what, through earnest prayer, I believe God wants, which is sometimes not what I want. When was the last time that you thought about a church vote like that? Well, I'd really rather if we... Nobody cares! It's not your church! If you want a church, you've got to build your own. And I can guarantee you, like lots of cults that have come and gone, the gates of hell will prevail against yours. Death will overcome yours. <laughs> but against Jesus's, there is no victory. Last little verse, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, in Greek, this is one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. Because uh, he doesn't use the future tense. He uses the passive perfect tense. So literally, and this isn't, this isn't good English, which is the reason they translate it the way they did. Literally, he says, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So it's not that Peter gives the order and then God says, okay, let me update my records. It's that Peter here representing the church that's going to be built does what God does. When God says something is bound together, they say it's bound together. When God says something is loose, they say it's loose. So when God says, yes, you ought to do this, the church says, yes, you must do this, whether or not it's popular. 
when God says, no, you can't do this, loosing is what the rabbis called it when they forbade something. The church says, no, you can't do it, no matter how much you want to. But there's something else tied in here. It means that I cannot bind things that God has not bound, and I cannot loose things that God has not loosed. I may not like it if people wear the color, pink color nobody's wearing. Uh, I, I may not like it if people wear, you know, light brown. I may think a light brown shirt is just the worst thing you can do. It's an offense to God and good taste and whatever. But do you know that I've got no authority to bind you on what I think? Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Your job as a Christian especially corporately gathered together as a church. God didn't save you to be an individual Lone Ranger Christian. God saved you to be a people. Your job as a church is to identify the will of God and do it. To speak where God speaks, no matter what, and to be silent where God is silent. And I don't know which one of those is harder. Because we want to have our own traditions, our own ways of doing things, our own this, our own that. And then there's some things God talks about that we'd rather just kind of downplay, you know, culturally or whatever. But we've got a responsibility to bind where God binds and loose where God looses. And when we do that, we can't be overcome because we're acting as his assembly, his church, built on the rock, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. When Jesus said that he was standing in front of Caesarea Philippi, he was standing in front of the domain of Caesar who was going to have him killed. Christianity is not saying that bad things won't happen. It's saying that God's power goes on. And all this rock Thank you.
to you one more time. And see if you can't fit it all together in your mind now. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. You've been bought with Christ. Can't do it. Let's pray and argue this is one for Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the promise of victory that you give us. We thank you that your son gave his life to build our lives on an unshakable foundation. We thank you that you didn't fall into the individualism of our culture and uh, treat us like we don't belong in the community, but that you bought us to be a church for you here, that you bought us to do your work, that you bought us to dispense the riches of your kingdom. Father, there's so much more here in the text that we could have looked at, so much more that our minds 